Good morning, friends. Let me begin this morning's sermon by asking all of you a question. So, as far as you know, what do you think is the key to success? Right? Your best guess, like how can you know what is the right thing to do or what kind of decisions you should be making so that you might enjoy the good life? Humans have always been interested in this question. Every worldview in history and every culture has some answer to this. In fact, today, the global self-help self industry is estimated to be worth around 41 billion U.S. dollars. And in America, it's estimated that people are spending about $2 billion on things like psychics and astrologers. I Google this, and a going rate for having your palm read is like $100 for 15 minutes. That's daylight robbery. I should consider changing careers, but I won't. Because all that shows is like people in the world are looking everywhere and are willing to pay serious money to get some help figuring this out. Because outside of how not to die, I assume how to actually be healthy happy and wise while not being dead is what we all at least want to have some idea of what to do. And maybe that's what some of you guys here are trying to find out. And if so, you're in luck because the passage that we're going to study today is probably the clearest passage in the Bible, or one of at least, that tells us how we can tangibly live long and prosper in the world, right? How to have your best life now. You heard right, friends. Today, we're going to be studying the biblical steps to success. We're still on our series on the book of Proverbs, and today we're going to be studying the third speech from the father to the son. And the last speech, we focused on what wisdom protects us from. And in this speech, we'll look at what wisdom help us get. Now, to my young, reformed, and restless friends, right, hold on, don't label me as a heretic and burn me at the stake just yet, I'm not going to be preaching the prosperity gospel today, okay? Because the prosperity gospel tells us that we are entitled to financial blessings and physical health, and our faith and religious devotions will somehow allow us to supernaturally transcend our worldly problems and get supernatural solutions to them. On the other hand, as we've previously established in the series, this means that what the word, uh, book of Proverbs is trying to teach is actually wisdom. It was never trying to give us some life hacks or magic formulas that guarantee success. After all, we are studying the book of Proverbs and not the book of Promises. However, it is trying to tell us how the world ought to, and indeed in most cases, actually does tend to work, right? It's giving us the blueprint, the norm, the ideal, fully knowing that there are exceptions and deviations to this that exist, right? And the Bible itself accounts for this. You can look at the book of Ecclesiastes in Job for an exploration of this, right? It's like the book of Proverbs is saying something along the lines of, if you get good grades and go to a reputable school, you're gonna have a bright future, right? Like, you know, that's generally true, but it's not 
necessarily always the case. And so then Ecclesiastes and Job would problematize that and help us think through what to make of things when things do not go as expected. Okay, so I'll leave that as that for now, and this can become a very long tangent that can't be explored fully in the sermon. Do come to me afterwards if you have any questions about how to interpret Proverbs. But let's just keep that in mind as we finally read this text and learn what is the blueprint to success in God's world. From Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. This is the word of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the uh, first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Thus says the Lord. Friends, what we just read is the closest thing you're ever going to find to the Bible's guide to winning in life. And I think these verses highlight at least four practical things that we can practice, which will put us on track at least towards the good life, okay? Our four points, your best life now, four steps to living at your full potential. One, you got to start from the right place. Two, trust the right person. Three, spend the right way. And four, have the right view of yourself. Start from the right place, trust the right person, spend the right way, and four, have the right view of ourselves. May the Lord grant us ears to hear his wisdom today and protect us from any foolishness that is not according to his wisdom that's out of my mouth, okay? So point one, you gotta start from the right place. So the father begins here in verse one, saying, my son, do not forget my teachings. It must be noted here that the sense of the word forget here is not some innocent slippage of my memory, right? It's not like how I forget to bring my charger on a regular basis. But in the Bible, this kind of forgetfulness is actually more like willful neglect. Like God was unhappy with Israel quite a few times in the Bible for forgetting his commandments. And in those cases, what happened was clearly that Israel knowingly ignored what God had said and chose to do the opposite. So the father is like, okay, so please don't do that, but instead, keep them. And likewise, this word keep here isn't talking about simply memorizing them in your head, but it's actually more along the lines of protecting it or keeping it safe. You see, 
What the Father calls us to do is actually treasure his teachings, to diligently observe them, love them, such that we want to persistently and consistently follow them. That's why what does it say is the part of us that's supposed to keep these teachings? Our hearts, right? That's what's the Bible idea of the part of us that loves with. And he actually goes on to illustrate what this looks like using a couple of metaphors later in verse 3. That these commands should be bound on your neck and written in the tablets of your heart. Communicating that our commitment to these commands should be both internal and external. As in our adherence to the Father's teaching is meant to be on the one hand like a necklace, right? Something that beautifies us from the outside and people can see, but at the same time, his teachings aren't this foreign thing to us that we put on only for show. Rather, these things have actually become a part of us. They are written on the tablets of your heart, meaning that these teachings are now what actually defines us, that we've incorporated it, we've embodied it, it's in our bones. Hence, the external evidences of our commitment to these teachings are actually an overflow of what's already true about us internally. So you see what the Father is trying to urge us to do here? Not simply intellectual understanding, not merely performative religion or some ritualistic obedience, but a wholehearted buy-in to the wisdom of God. He is pleading for us to take every initiative and to whatever is necessary in order to not stray from the wisdom of God because this is actually where the good life in God's world must start. And check out what the proverb says can potentially be ours if we are really grounded in God's wisdom like this. Verse 2, it says, the length of days and years of your life will be added to us. So through obeying God's word, we get to continue enjoying the gift of life that's given to us by God. Not only that, it also tells us that we will have peace. And, you know, uh, this word for peace is one that people who continuously go to church is probably aware of is this word shalom and far more than just a simple greeting or a reference to a state where there is no conflict. At its core, shalom describes the state of wholeness and completion where nothing is missing and broken and things are working as they were designed to. And where this wholeness is most visibly and tangibly realized is actually in our relationships. This is what verse 4 is talking about. Well, the, the word good success there isn't actually talking about you know, making a profit or winning. Rather, it's about how people look at us. In Hebrew, it's literally good view. People will have a good view of you. In other words, if we diligently follow the blueprint of God's wisdom, our relationships are going to heal. And it puts us in a really good position not only to have the approval of God, but of people too. Right? So how great is that? 
We get to be fully functional people who can live without the anxiety and fear of death in restored relationships, right? Sounds heavenly, doesn't it? But I want to reiterate here, friends, that these blessings are not things that will be granted supernatural access to if we chose wisdom. On the contrary, Proverbs is talking about it as if this is the normal and natural consequences of following God's blueprint. And that's why it's hinted here in the beginning of verse 3 to not let steadfast love and faithfulness never forsake you. Let steadfast love and faithfulness never forsake you. You see, the sentence here is actually telling us that following God's wisdom is basically drawing near and holding on to the attributes of God that is the source of every benefit. His steadfast love and faithfulness. These are loaded and meaningful biblical words and the full depth of which cannot be explained here. But suffice to say that this is referring to the character of God who is reliably loving and kind. Who delights in and always gives to us much more generously than we deserve. So far from our performance earning us or somehow entitling us to these benefits of life and peace, they have always been given to us graciously by God who is by no means obligated to give it to us. But wisdom and going along the grains of the universe following the blueprints does certainly keep us close to him. And it should give us some level of comfort knowing where we can find the approval and wholeness and security that I believe every single human deeply seeks. And although this sounds simple, it's by no means easy. Because each of us, though each of us long for these benefits and have this wisdom and success, the unfortunate habit of the human heart is not to find these benefits through the path of wisdom as intended, but rather to look for alternatives that seem more convenient to us. A tendency which our Father urges us to resist, which is point two. Trust the right person. Friends, if I were to pick one verse in the Bible that basically summarizes all that the Bible tells us to do is verse 5 right here. Perhaps one of the more well-known verses in the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I think pretty much all the commandments and all the laws in the Bible can be boiled down to this statement. Now what does this involve? What does it mean to trust the Lord? Well, certainly it requires some measure of deference, doesn't it? Like the opposite of trusting the Lord is leaning on or relying on our understanding. So there's this mix of humility and accepting what, that we don't have all the answers and we can't possibly get everything right, along with the confidence knowing that God actually knows what's right and what he has in mind is actually best. And trust isn't also talking about some sort of passive resignation that we just and just like 
sit down as everything happens to us by the will of God. On the contrary, the text shows us that trust involves active participation. Look at verse 6. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. So we are the ones still walking the way. We are the ones still taking action. But as we take action at the same time, we always acknowledge him. Meaning, in all that we do, we are always paying attention to God's will and presence. Both knowing what God wants us to do and understanding that God deeply cares about what we choose to do. So this involves a sort of verification process, doesn't it? Whereby we are taking every thought captive, running every decision by God. Should I take this job? Should I pursue this relationship? Should I spending, be spending time doing this activity? And so on and so forth. God cares about these choices. And his input is always helpful. And we seek him not out of some slavish fear, but because we understand that there is no way we can succeed apart from God's providence. Not a chance if it was up to us and our own wisdom and power. And when we do this, the proverb says, he will make our ways straight. Or to put it another way, God's going to clear the road for us. It's saying that if we get over ourselves and get on board with what God is doing and trusting God to guide us in what we do, though what he might be guiding us through is difficult, we can rest assured that following him in this way will get us to a good place. And again, don't misunderstand The proverb is not saying that if we trust God, we're going to get what we want or what we think it's best. It's not as if if we put God into the equation, our problems will be solved. Rather, we are supposed to allow God to show us what the real problem is and then using his equation to solve it. Not using him as a means to our purposes, but making ourselves available as a partner for his purposes. And when we commit to this, there is no reason for anything else besides confidence in the outcome. You see, it's all about getting on God's frequency. This is what we need to do if we ever want to genuinely trust God and gain the wisdom that is necessary for a good life. And that's why in verse 7, this is mentioned. Because the human heart has this sick tendency to be wise in our own eyes. And this is generally how this works, right? So everybody wants the good life, right? Who doesn't want to be happy, healthy, and wise? But in the pursuit of that, we inevitably deal with complications, right? It's not going to be smooth sailing. And when we handle these complications, responding in a way that is in line with the fear of the Lord can be really inconvenient and hard. So the tendency of our own hearts is actually to look to ourselves and to determine good and evil for ourselves in order that we can do things our own way. 
And when we do that, we can, perhaps unconsciously, deceive ourselves into believing that compromising and cutting corners to get to where we want is justified. Then if we do this, the scary thing is that things can really look like it's starting to work out for us, right? We might start seeing the results that we want after doing things our own way, leading us to feel validated in our choices, patting ourselves in the back and thinking that we are wise. You see, becoming wise in our own eyes. It's, and it's this vicious cycle. So let me give you a maybe more concrete example that I hope a lot of us can relate to. The culture of overwork that plagues most major urban centers like Jakarta, right? Like there are many high achieving professionals, people who built great companies and are, are incredibly respected at their profession whose personal lives are a disaster. To get that far, maybe they had to sacrifice time with their family. They don't ever see their kids. Maybe working that hard or taking a toll on their physical and mental health. Or perhaps they even had to be willing to indirectly or even directly disadvantage or harm some other people. But when they look at the bottom line, at the end of the month, they feel like they've been productive because of what they've earned and are convinced that they've done well. But biblical wisdom would point at that and say that someone like that, he's become, although successful, foolish, even if they feel otherwise, because they did not start from the fear of the Lord, which at its core, means turning away from what is evil and harmful. That's what verse 7 says. And so they have redefined the good for themselves and made something that's actually wise in most cases, right? Like accumulating resources so that we can take care of ourselves as the ultimate good and pursued that at the expense of others, making this once wise thing a detrimental thing and ruining relationships, ruining ourselves to our own detriment in the end. Hence, the only way to prevent or remedy that is actually restructuring everything that we do based on this principle of fear of the Lord. That's what verse 8 is saying. When we make the fear of the Lord, the axiom of our decisions, when we make upholding God's perspective the number one priority, then we will find refreshment and healing. It is then when we see the damage of our short-sighted selfish sinfulness be repaired. Only then will the pursuit of what is good not turn what is good into something that's harmful and this pursuit not crush us. Friends, this teaching is actually really encouraging us to develop the skill of a healthy suspicion towards ourselves. Because there's always going to be a way that seems right to us, a choice that makes sense in the moment. And it's always good to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Checking ourselves against what God told us is right and wrong, checking our motives 
making sure that we're not only that we're not operating out of some horrible sinful selfish place in our hearts making sure that we not only make the right decisions but we're doing it for the right reasons now admittedly god hasn't given us direct instructions about every single situation right there is a lot of ambiguity in life hence another thing that wisdom is about is internalizing what is wise in some of the very clear scenarios so that we can begin to develop a sense or a palette, how Tezar puts it, as to what might be wise in these ambiguous ones. And you know, a great way this sense can be checked, it's by how you cash them checks. Right? Sorry about that, which is point three. Right? To live a good life, you got to spend the right way. So, this point might be a little shorter, but it needs to be a point because it's a point in our text, right? Interesting, isn't it? That in this particular speech, after laying out the principle of trusting the Lord, the Father gives us two ways that this trust plays out. And we really shouldn't be too surprised that the first way has to do with how we use our wealth. Verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. So in the context of ancient Israel, this was in reference to their temple worship practices, right? Where they were supposed to set aside some of what they have produced for the maintenance of the temple and to help the poor. In fact, they were supposed to do this first before they take for themselves what they needed, right? This is the principle basically behind the practice of the first fruit offering that's talked about here but the application nowadays isn't to simply make sure you give your tithes to church although as someone who is working for church full-time ideally you guys would at least do that but at heart friends this is not just about money it's about the general allocation of resources you see, realize it or not, we're always honoring something. There's always something we are investing, not our money only, but also our time, attention, and energy into. And these are precious resources that we have a limited amount in a given time. And generally, we put most of it in what we care most about. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So the question is, are we investing these resources in something finite that moth or rust can destroy and thieves break in and steal? Or are we investing these resources in that which is heavenly or eternal? What are some of the specific ways we can do this in your particular context is a longer separate discussion but the point here is that is this the question that we're asking is this what really matters to us when we're thinking about how to spend our resources i know for me most of the time it's often not for me it's probably usually to maximize my own pleasure but this should really change right because if honoring God does truly becomes the governing factor about how we allocate our resources, 
Proverbs tells us that this is actually highly beneficial for us. It says there in verse 10, that our barns will be filled with plenty and our vats bursting with wine. In other words, honoring God with our wealth will allow us to experience abundance. Now, I understand some of you are getting nervous here, right? Because that sounds awful lot like the prosperity gospel, right? Like if you sow with God by giving some money to some ministry, then he will make you reap the benefits of what you've sown. Any of you guys have heard that before? This is not about that, okay? This can definitely be another long discussion, but I think this is not saying that there is some kind of reciprocation from God to our giving. As if our religious activities are what is supernaturally earning us money. Because what this is really talking about is that restructuring our resources based on what honors God will get us out of a mindset of scarcity and into a mindset of abundance. See, the reason why we feel like we don't have enough is because in general, the world operates under the mindset of scarcity, whereby the world is this cruel, unpredictable place, resources are limited, and so everybody needs to hustle, everybody got to work as hard as possible, and then do whatever is necessary so that you and your tribe can be taken care of. But when we actually honor God with our wealth, we are practicing a mindset of abundance whereby we are putting into practice the principle that everything that we have is actually a gift from God that he generously has given us. And in fact, God has placed us in a world that is actually stocked full of abundance, where there is enough for us and for everyone else. So we can be like Jesus, who although had no earthly wealth to speak of, he saw the birds of the field, the birds of the air, they were fed. He saw the flowers in the field, and they were beautiful. And because he knew that he is far more loved than these, he can rest assured, knowing that he will be taken care of by the Father too. And this understanding actually frees him to focus and invest his time in doing the will of the Father instead of worrying about taking care of himself. You see, honoring God with our wealth is about this transference of trust. Instead of trusting material riches and our ability to accumulate it as the source of our well-being, now trusting the person of God as the source who made all the riches in the world, that he will take care of us and he will never run out. And when we have this relationship of trust with God, it's not only possible to feel like that we do have enough, but also we will get the resilience to make it through even when things do not go our way. Our final point. The good life needs for to have the right view of ourselves. You see, one of the hardest things about fully trusting God is simply that God does not give us what our heart desires often in a way that we expect. 
and a lot of the times not within our ideal timeline. In fact, God may even deem it good and necessary for something that we love and that we believe we can never live without to be taken away. And when this happens, in these moments, it's very tempting for us to question God, asking, does he really love me? Is he really good? Is he actually even there? Have any of you has these doubts before? It's really understandable. If you do, I've been there. And what I realized was the reason that these questions, these doubts appeared in my heart when I was struggling is because I equated worldly blessing with divine favor. I thought that if God and I were good, we're on good terms, it means that it's going to be smooth sailing. And I should be getting what I want. Therefore, if things are not as expected, there must be that it's, there's something wrong with me. That I've offended him and somehow he's punishing me. So I need to make it up somehow so that I can be on his good side again and then warrant getting the blessing. But in fact, when I do this, I'm not actually putting my trust in God, am I? My trust is still in my ability to please God, whether I've been good or wise enough. And it could be really, really discouraging when we're convinced of this and try really, really hard, yet the blessings that we want, that we've been praying for, never actually materialize. But this final summary statement of Proverbs actually completely changes this perspective. It says that actually, if we are trusting in the Lord, suffering is part and parcel of God's love for us. In verses 11 and 12 here, the word reproof is actually literally in Hebrew, afflict, right? It almost can be translated as God hurts the one that he loves. Meaning that it is out of God's love that he actually sends us into challenging and painful situations. Not to punish us, but for our own ultimate good. Last year, I was listening to a podcast by this guy you might have heard of, Tim Keller, who is with the Lord now after uh, his battle with cancer. And he was saying that this round, the second round that he has to fight with cancer was actually quite the spiritual smelling salts. It really woke him up and helped him understand what is most important. So although he was going through some unimaginable physical pain, he said that in that moment, he is closer to God than he's ever been before. And he has been, never been more aware that he is surrounded by grace than he was then. Guys, this is Tim Keller. Not many people is more knowledgeable and have done more for the kingdom of God than he. But even him, even he needed to experience growth through suffering. Growth he couldn't have had otherwise. Who are we to say that some suffering would be good for us in the end. And friends, like Tim Keller, it's only possible for us not to be crushed 
in what could be overwhelmingly difficult circumstances is if we know that these troubles that we're going through are not punishments, but they are in fact still gifts, intending to help us let go of the worldly things that we have unconsciously trusted. Helping us to get past these sins and these idols that we've stubbornly held on to. So that we can draw near to Him and closer to Him and have a deeper trust with Him than ever before. But we can only trust that affliction we're going through are not punishments for us is if indeed we see who we are in his eyes, who it is, what it is actually that is our identity. And it's clear, isn't it, in verse 12, that before God, we are his sons and daughters in whom he delights. And we must never take for granted, friends, that the status that we have as children of God is not something that we have by default. It wasn't a given, nor was it something that we earned through our righteousness. On the contrary, our failure to trust God and our stubborn disposition to do things our way has produced much evil and harm in the world. Something is broken because of our sinfulness. Someone is hurt. And this rightfully actually makes us God's enemies and not his sons. But the gospel says, thanks be to God because of his faithfulness and love that he would send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect wisdom and fully trusted in the will of the Father to be afflicted for us, to take the punishment for us so that we too can be forgiven of our guilt and be adopted as sons so that all the suffering that we go through now has changed from being punishment to discipline, from being destructive to constructive. So Christian, because of what, what our Lord has done, no matter how harsh the circumstances seem for us, we can rest assured that behind it is not divine cruelty, but love. He is really working behind all things for our good. So my prayer is for you that you would be filled, Christian, with the Holy Spirit through whom you cry out to God, Abba, Father your trust in him may increase and you may be truly beginning to live your best life now, which only happens when we are in sync with our heavenly father. However, if there are those here among us who are worried that you're not actually sons and daughters of God yet, if maybe for some reason you're hesitating to trust in the Lord because you think that God is still trying to punish you, the message that I'm trying to tell you today is that God wants you as his son or daughter. And right now you can do that. If you resolve to let go of the things that you've relied on up to this point, if you would confess Jesus as Lord and trust him to lead your life. And I tell you today, friends, if you commit to that today, the promises of God says that you will find perfect peace when your mind is stayed on him. 
And when you follow him, Jesus will lead you to a better place than where you are right now. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, who has filled our world with your blessings. Lord, your mercies are new every day, and without them, we cannot live. Every breath we have is from you, and you are the one who is sustaining us in all that we do. Father, our sinful, stubborn, and ignorant hearts often try to block that truth out. But I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us that we may behold the true vast and thoroughness of the grace that you surround us with. Father, make us vividly aware of our limitations and make us also magnify you and understand how truly wonderful it is when we are living in your courts, when we have aligned our hearts to you that we may see you. And this we thank you because it is not through our wisdom and power that we have a relationship with you, but because of your grace that you've given us through your son. In Jesus' name we pray.